well, it's go time, so we're ready. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club Post 9-11 Evening Storytelling Event. It's so great to see everyone here tonight. I want to extend a heartfelt welcome. It's really great to see these seats filled, and I'm so glad you all are here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. All right, Lauren, you are on a fellowship with The Mission Continues. You have joined the VBC team. You started July... July 16th. Since then, you've done a couple of podcast episodes. You've hosted a live event. How are you liking the experience so far? I couldn't have expected any of this, honestly. I I didn't really know what I was in store for. I had been to one of the evening events for VBC, like before I started the fellowship here, where you forced me to talk. So I figured it would kind of go right along that way. You would just force me to do stuff and I'll just do it. (laughs) And it's easy. It's pretty easy. Yeah. And I mean, I've sat back and I watch you a lot and I watch Todd a lot um, and I watch how you guys do what you do. I'm just taking your lead. That seems to be working out for me. Yeah. Well, that's what I did when I first came on. I just watched Todd. Yeah. I'm usually the only female in a room, you know, but like, you know, I was engineering in the the Navy, so I was kind of used to that. So that doesn't bother me all that much. You enjoy doing the podcast? I do. Two weeks ago, I think was my first one. Was it two weeks now? Yeah. And I interviewed two female veterans. I love the idea coming into it, you know, creating more diversity, having, because you've had females on too. So, I mean, you, you know what you're doing, but I think there's a little bit more comfort level there and they're willing to share kind of things with me that more go along the lines of girl talk. Sure. Then maybe I'm glad you said it because it would sound <laughs> sexist and condescending if I said girl talk, but that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's true though. And um, like the interview that I just did with Ariana was really natural and I'm really enjoying it. I can, I can say that I do enjoy the podcasting more than I enjoy hosting the live events. And I told you this, and I told Todd before, I have like a whole new respect and understanding for what it is you guys do when you get up there at these breakfast club events, whether it be morning or evening, because there's a lot of pressure when you have a a live audience. So with the podcast, you know, even though there there's some nerves there, it's not as bad as standing up in front of a room of people. Um, Luckily, you know, I do have some tools to guide my way through that because I went to school, but still didn't teach me how to open up with the slideshow correctly. Sure. (laughs) And uh, shit the bed on that. Some of the folks at home listening are going to get a little more insight into that because this episode, we're going to actually play that live event, fuck-ups and all included. (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) Probably not, but maybe. I don't know. We'll see how Kevin and the guys feel when they're editing, how generous they feel. (laughs) Yeah, because you recorded that, but you didn't tell me until afterwards. Yeah, because I didn't want to rattle you. You rattled yourself plenty. Yeah. (laughs) But the live events are good. They're good. It's a good opportunity because we have a lot of civilians at these events that don't necessarily have a lot of military connection. So it's good for them to hear firsthand uh, from guys in the room. We can show pictures and we can, there's really no limit to what we can talk about, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, um, it's very free, like a, uh, I hate the term safe space, but like in essence, that's what it is. It's a safe environment. People just say whatever they want to about their experience. Mm-hmm. That'd be cool. We'll get into that. I, f- I feel like we're, we're doing really well, but we could always do better, right? Like right. we're always since to improve. So with that said, all the podcast listeners, we would like to hear from you. If, if there's any specific topics you'd like us to discuss, any guests you'd like us to have on, any criticisms, do you like Lauren as a host better? We'd like to hear all those things. So please feel free to email us, any of us on staff. It's nick at veteransbreakfastclub.com, lauren at veteransbreakfastclub.com. 
So if you want to bitch about how terrible Lauren is, like send those to me. Don't send those to her, obviously, and vice versa. <laughs> if you want to complain about me, send them to Lauren, because I've got an ego and I don't really want to get those emails. <laughs> Seriously, we, we would love to hear what people think. Because I mean, we haven't been doing this very long. We're still trying to figure our way out on this as well. It's new to us. There's not a lot of people doing the work that we're doing. So there's not a lot of templates or blueprints for what we're doing. So we're kind of winging it. Right. It's going good, but we'd like to hear some feedback. So also, if they could take time to like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, whatever you want. So a couple of weeks ago, we recorded our last live evening event. I'd give it a 9 out of 10. That's it. Here we go. So I'm going to get started. I'm Lauren. I'm new to the Veterans Breakfast Club, and they love to stick me up here at the beginning when I'm really nervous and do the business end of things to get me a little more comfortable with what we are and um, some of our sponsors and supporters that we have. Uh, we are funded primarily by Jefferson Regional and the Heinz Endowments. They're a great supporter of ours, so we always like to acknowledge that in the beginning of our events. Um, and now this is where uh, we like to introduce everyone, a part of our team. Todd is the brains of the operation. You look really like professional there, Todd. What happened? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, over there in the corner, oh no, he moved back here now. The most, un the most uncomfortable slide for me is um, Kevin. <laughs> He's the muscle <laughs> of our operation. Um, and here's Richard Simmons shorts. And if you, if you notice here in the corner, it says there's nothing wrong with these shorts. Who wrote that? Yeah, what a, what a Richard Simmons shorts, right? <laughs> we call this the battle of the bulge. That's what we call this picture. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> I went there. Marshall is our enforcer. He's not here tonight, but we love Marshall. He's such a great supporter of ours. <laughs> we do need a funny picture of Ben. Oh, God. And if you, if you can't tell, this lovely woman devouring a turkey leg uh, is me. I'm the rookie. And Nick lifted this picture off my Facebook and thought it would be hilarious. It kind of is, though. But I'm earning my way up to, like, something where I have my eyes open. So we'll get there. And, of course, he's the looks of the operation. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously for obvious reasons. We're really fortunate tonight to have Carol Borden with us, um, Guardian Angel Medical Service Dogs, Inc. Um, I actually uh, just want to introduce her and let her come up here and talk about uh, what Guardian Angels are. Um, if Carol wouldn't mind coming up to tell us a little bit about Guardian Angels. I don't know if you can bring your Guardian Angel up with you, if that would be okay. Hello, and thank you for having us this evening. Um, we are Guardian Angels Medical Service Dogs, and if you don't know what that means, we are very different from emotional support dogs or therapy dogs. Service dogs are the only dogs that are federally protected because they're considered to be medical equipment, not pets. And so our dogs learn a lot of skills, and we donate our dogs after they're custom trained for our recipients to do things that they would otherwise not be able to do themselves, like pull tape off of the floor. <laughs> he, he always has to show off since he didn't get the microphone. 
But we have uh, wonderful, wonderful stories about the work that we do. As everyone is probably familiar with our combat veterans, we're seeing 32 to 39 suicide attempts on a daily basis with 22 ending in death, which is totally unacceptable. Our families are suffering a 90% divorce rate. We've been doing this for eight years. We have over 200 teams paired across the country, and we have never had a suicide or divorce once we pair our dogs zero. So we're very proud of the work that our dogs can do. Uh, they do actual skills like stopping nightmares. They know the difference between good dreams and bad dreams so they can help you get a full night's sleep once again. They can alert to anxiety attacks, flashbacks, ground you, stop them. Um, and those are just for PTSD, of course, uh, but there's many more things that they can do, such as mobility and taking tape off the carpet, picking up dropped items, opening and closing doors, drawers, turning on and off lights, bringing food and water from the refrigerator. If you were unconscious, they know to go hit a 911 button to bring help. Um, just there's a plethora of things we can teach. There's really no limit. And then we uh, spend a lot of time, nearly two years, training these dogs at a cost of over $22,000, and we donate every one of them to our veterans. Uh, we're actually located, our headquarters is in Florida, but we are a national organization. I flew up here this week because we are actively engaged in looking at property. We're going to build a second campus here in the Pittsburgh area. So um, there's a lot of need for what we do, and we have a very long waiting list, and we would like to satisfy that much more quickly because we get a lot of phone calls every day. And so with the support of great people, uh, we are here to help all the veterans that we possibly can. Obviously, we're a nonprofit. All of our funding comes from philanthropic people, corporate agencies, um, corporate sponsors, and grants and fundraisers. So when you see something being advertised that we're having uh, a fundraiser in this area to help support donating these dogs, please uh, come out. We're having a mutt strut um, September 16th in uh, Frick Park and lots of other things going on. We'll soon be uh, announcing the property where we'll be building a new campus. It'll be a multi-million dollar campus that is going in where we can help tons of veterans that are so deserving. So thank you for your time, and I'll be around if you have any questions. Thank you so much. Let's hear it for Carol. Carol, what's your dog's name? Let's hear it for Carol and Huey. <laughs> thank you so much for coming. You know, there's multiple different types of organizations that support the veteran population. Um, I can personally attest um, to the effect that a, that a dog has on a human being. And I can also personally attest to the effect the Mission Continues has on a human being, um, especially a veteran who suffers with disability. I know someone that's gonna tell this story better than I ever could about what the Mission Continues is and how they help veterans here in Pittsburgh. So I'm gonna ask Stephanie Grimes to come up um, and tell us briefly about the Mission Continues. I'm currently serving in a Mission Continues Fellowship for VBC. I'll be really quick. I know you guys didn't come to hear me talk. Mission Continues, we are a national nonprofit. I run the programs here locally. We help veterans reintegrate into the community through providing them a pathway to service at home. So we have pathways of volunteerism to get them 
to get veterans engaged in the community, but also to begin that process of being a solution to complicated um, issues here on the ground. We have a service platoon, which is the model where a bunch of veterans and non-veterans come together and do uh, large-scale service projects. Um, we have a platoon that focuses on neighborhood revitalization in the Hazelwood community, that's Pittsburgh first platoon. Pittsburgh second platoon focuses on youth serving, building the capacity of youth serving organizations in Homewood. And then we most recently just launched a third service platoon, which is focused on supporting the refugee community in the South Hills area. So there's a number of pathways that they can get involved in the community and take leadership roles. And then we also have a fellowship program, which provides, which is what Lauren is currently doing with the Veterans Breakfast Club. It provides post 9-11, that one's specific to post 9-11 veterans. Um, they get embedded into a nonprofit organization that they identify. Carol had mentioned to me earlier that she has been a host to a Michigan Continues Fellow in Florida. Um, so they volunteer 20 hours a week, six months. During that time, we provide them um, a staff person to support them um, as they navigate through this new area for them. And then we also provide them a monthly uh, living stipend. So they have six months, 20 hours a week volunteering out in the civilian world and it allows them to provide a sense of purpose, to gather a sense of purpose again, and then also find their pathway to where they fit in in the big, scary civilian world. So. That's us. If you have any questions, I'm here. Thank you, Steph. Uh, is, where is Gene Bradshaw? There you are. Come on up, Gene. He's going to tell us a little bit about um, some super duper acronyms here, MSCCN and KCSY. I am Gene Bradshaw, I'm the newest uh, volunteer for MSCCN and CASI. So MSCCN stands for Military Spouse Corporate Career Network and Cassie stands for Corporate America Supports You. Um, both of the organizations provide employment readiness to transitioning military, reservists, National Guardsmen, and military-affiliated candidates uh, to the desktops of recruiter partners. Our organization takes each person through customized services that meet their individual needs, from self-actualization, targeted industry assistance, validation of skills, gap skills, training, and our organization works to collaborate with military, government, and private partners to ensure success for those we serve. Cassie and MSCCN are the only nonprofits in the country that have a memorandum of understanding, another military acronym, right, MOUs, uh, with every branch of the military, including the National Guard, Army Re Reserves, and U.S. Coast Guard. And it's a program that's not a one-time use. So anybody that's semi-employed, underemployed, wants to look for that new job, uh, they can register with us and we can help them uh, with their resume writing, interviewing skills, and that kind of stuff. And uh, we do have some online training courses that they can take as well to, to help them with that. And 46% 40, of our folks are returning users of the service. So if anybody wants more information, I have some handouts for you. Thanks, Gene. Is Joel here? No. Um, if anyone wants to know more about No One Left Behind, um, there's in, uh, interpreters in Iraq and Afghanistan that basically are embedded with our men and women over there, um, and they serve a vital mission, a vital role in the mission. Um, and this organization helps to provide them housing, anything they could need, and get them over here and get them safe because they're not safe over there. So if you have any questions about No One Left Behind or how you can volunteer, see one of us afterwards. 
Um, Ryan All is going to come up and uh, do a little Vet Center commercial. Hi, Ryan. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Ryan All. Uh, I work for the Vet Center program. We are a VA program, uh, a community-based outpatient clinic that provides readjustment counseling to war zone veterans and their families. So. Uh, we have over 300 vet centers across the country. The closest one uh, is my vet center in Green Tree. There's another vet center in White Oak. Um, we are primarily staffed by veterans. Uh, we are always free. There's never any copay associated with what we do. Uh, we provide individual counseling, group counseling, marital and family counseling, uh, as well as counseling for victims of military sexual trauma. Uh, you don't have to be a war zone veteran to receive that counseling uh, and bereavement counseling for any family member who has lost a service member. So uh, we are part of the VA. We are a little bit separate, um, but uh, if you have any VA questions or uh, would like more information on the Vet Center, I will be here. Um, so thank you. All right. Is everybody ready to have fun tonight? We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk religion. We're going to talk about Kevin Shorts. It's going to be a fun night. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to talk about, well, we'll talk about one of those things, but I'll let you be a secret of which one it's going to be. Uh, before we get started, the Heinz Endowments is one of our funders, and they shot this neat little video that we wanted to share, and then we wanted to get the thoughts of the Order veterans on the message behind it. When September 11th happened, I remember the feeling was it was like a very personal attack on us uh, as a country. I wanted to do something impactful. I, I wanted something that had a meaning behind it. And certainly the Army, there, there was meaning there. When you're at sea, it's your primary concern as an engineer is to keep the ship moving forward and keep the lights on. And you don't have time to be afraid. You have a job to do. My first job at 23 in the Army was in charge of 100 people and millions of dollars worth of equipment. You know, you had such an important job that giving it up, it's really hard to figure out where you fit after that. I don't ever know what to say when somebody says thank you for your service. Because I don't think they even know what they're thanking me for, because I don't know what they're thanking me for. I think my response strongly is, uh, you're welcome. I gained way more from it than I lost. Don't thank me for my service, because it's, it's cliche and it's almost, it's normalizing and it almost seems now obligatory. I don't like it when people thank me for my service. Uh, it sounds like you've done your part, you're done with service, thank you so much, and now move along. Uh, I had been uh, a helicopter pilot, I had been an S6. I expected when I came out that I was just gonna be, you know, having to decide which of the jobs that I wanted. I applied for 800 jobs, 800, to get one. And it's like that experience in the Army didn't count. It was like null and void. A hero? No. No. I do not consider myself to be a hero. No. Not by a long shot. To my kids. It's a small number of people who deserve that. There's around 7,500 heroes um, between Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't think that you can thank a hero because they're not here. I don't think I did anything that was heroic or did anything special for anybody. I had a lot of anxiety when I came home, which was weird because you'd think that you'd have more anxiety being overseas, but it was transitioning back home that was, you know, pretty hard for me. It's not having a network or not, not knowing where I belong, not knowing where exactly I fit in. It's pretty much you're plopped down and it's like, okay, find your way now. 
When I first got back from Iraq and Afghanistan, I had to deal with uh, a perception of who I was as a veteran. The vast majority of civilian uh, perception of veterans is that we're broken, that we're riddled with PTSD, or that we have so little skills that all we can do is knuckle drag. I, I hadn't quite realized that people were looking at me that way, that not only am I a big guy, <laughs> that I'm uh, sort of a weapon because I was in the military. It's, it's a stereotype, that's all it is. You probably pass a thousand veterans a day and you have no idea that they're veterans because they just act like normal human beings. The majority of us, the overwhelming majority of us are positively impacted by our service because it brings strengths and attributes and skills out of us. Veterans are entrepreneurial, they understand diversity, they're incredible leaders. So many of us have been through really, really weird and tough situations and we're such better persons for them. And if you're a hiring manager, you know a hiring manager, say, hey, our next hire should potentially be a veteran. That's really the best way that you can say thank you. Don't thank me, let's, let's talk about how we can make society better for veterans who are having a hard time reintegrating. There are better things to say like, oh, you were in the military. What did you do? How long did you serve? Tell me about your service. But don't ask that if you don't really care or you don't want to know the answer. But if you do, feel free to ask it. That's a way that we close this divide, right? Is share these experiences with each other. Please don't thank me, join me. Come out and serve with me and see the fact that I'm not done serving. I'm not even close. Thank me when I'm done at the end of the day. Thank me 50 years from now for all the things that we did together. Don't thank me now for what I did in the past. All right, so I heard some people disagree with the premise. We like to have disagreements here. We like to have civil conversations. So older veterans, tell us why us young vets are wrong about not wanting to be thanked for our service. Who wants to go first? I know someone's got a strong opinion on it. Ed, do you have a strong opinion on this? I knew you would. I have no reservations whatsoever about being thanked for my service. And when it happens, which only happens when I'm wearing something like this, I feel immediate gratitude I have a great regard for all American police officers, and every time I see one, I go out of my way and will often wait to shake his or her hand and say, thank you, I know you have the hardest job in America today. And <clears throat> today I happen to be on Pitt's campus, and uh, there was a middle-aged male officer with a young female officer and I waited because they were communicating with their phones and uh, I waited and I thanked them both and he looked pleased and she looked elated and it made me feel good to thank them so I think it gives other people some positive feeling to appreciate us in some way if just momentarily. Fair point. Can I ask Ed a question? <sighs> if you have to Todd. I got it, hold on a minute. I just have a question for Ed. When you got home from Vietnam, did anybody ever thank you for your service? It never happened. It truly never happened. All of this started, I would say, about three years ago when I became involved with the Veterans Breakfast Club. And now I have some gear that I wear to one event or another for different organizations. Did, did people go the step further, like was mentioned in the video, of maybe not thanking you for your service, but asking you about your service. Hey, Ed, I know you were away for a year in Vietnam. It, Tell never, me what it never once happened, no matter who I was dating, not with any family member, and I didn't begrudge them that. It simply wasn't happening in my presence with anyone. 
and the idea was to assimilate back into civilian life as painlessly as possible and get on with it. And I'd been out for 47 to 48 years before stuff started to happen. And as of today, I'm in eight military veterans organizations, and I'm grateful as hell to be here. I, it sounds like there's no way you could relate to what was said in the video. But did the video help to explain, like, Nick's generation, Lauren's generation, a little bit better, or you still don't get it? No. And, and maybe it's the fact that all those years passed, 47, 48 years without anything happening, that makes me maybe more grateful today to have some acknowledgement, not for what I did, but for the assumptions they make about what must have been going on at that time. There's someone over here that agrees with you. <laughs> I can verify that. Uh, I can give you a short story. My daughter, one time we were sitting at the table talking about something, and she said, I never knew you were in Vietnam until I was out of college. Out so, of college? Out of college. You were a bad father. <laughs> <laughs> I had nothing Whoa. to talk about. I had no, nothing to talk weren't. about. That was harsh, Nobody Todd. understood what you, nobody understood or wanted to understand what you had been through. And nobody ever asked me, as he said, nobody ever asked me when I went for a job interview or anything, were you in the service, were you in Vietnam, or what you did. And not even close to a thank you from anybody. No, never. Up until, like you said, I, I first joined an organization in, in 2010 when I retired. That was the first time anybody had ever said anything to me about it. So what do you think about the video? Well, yeah, Todd, this is my show. Will you please stop? But that was a good question. What do you think about the video? I was going to ask well, it anyway. I can understand where you're coming from, too, because sometimes I'm uncomfortable when they, if I wear a shirt every once in a while, it's got my organization on, uh, VVA 862, and they say, somebody says, thank you. I'm, I'm comfortable with it because nobody ever told me thank you. And I, like I said, I, I did what you guys did. I got drafted. I went. I did what I was asked to do, came back, but we came back today, you landed, you just got done in a, what, what you're going on in Vietnam, tomorrow you're walking down the street with all everybody else, they don't say nothing and you don't know anything about what's going on. There was no transition for most of us. We came back as an individual, not as a unit. I didn't go as a unit, I didn't come back as a unit. I went as an individual. I went in, I to, they told me this is what you do, this is your job, you did your job, you stayed here for a year, you, they said you get your orders, you're going home. You go home, you get on a plane, you land, that's the end of it. Nobody says anything about anything else. Yesterday was somebody was shooting at you, today you're walking with everybody else that's supposedly normal. Yeah, totally. So I think Ryan and Matt and Lauren and Damian would all agree with me. When a Vietnam vet or a Korea vet or a War II vet thanks me for my service, I am appreciative of that. That is meaningful to me. That, has, that carries much more weight than someone on the street. To me, when someone on the street says thank you for your service, we have this collective guilt over how we treated Vietnam veterans and people are overcompensating for that by trying to you know, do these, I don't wanna say meaningless acts, but throwing a yellow sticker on a car. Uh, I saw a great decal the other day. It says a yellow sticker or a yellow ribbon doesn't bandage a wound, right? And so by doing these little, tiny acts of patriotism. I think they're trying to make up for the disservice done to the Vietnam veterans, but it really, there's no meaning in it to me. If you were to thank me for my service, that would be, a, that's something that I would um, 
that would make my day better, right? But if Todd were to thank me for my service, I would be like, shut up, Todd. What do you know about what I did? Exactly, exactly. And, and that's the thing. I think that's, that's the key. More important than being thanked is engaged in a conversation to explain what the experience was like. But right, but what you, like, what you said was, they don't want to know what you did. All they said, you did something, thank you. They don't care what you went through while you were there for them. Right. Yeah, right. that uh, I, under, I understand that part of it. And, and I think that gets carried away sometimes with the thank yous. I agree with that part of it. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Appreciate it. No, no, thank you. Don't, don't thank him, Nick. I'm not thanking him <laughs> for his service. I'm thanking him for, for speaking. There's a Just difference. Kidding. <laughs> oh, sorry. Question. Yes. For me as a civilian and never having served in the military, this is my patriotic duty today, the job I have chosen with my nonprofit. But as a civilian, I feel that in a lot of ways, people in our country are very ungrateful. Um, maybe not so much ungrateful as they just expect certain things because they've just become so used to it. I don't feel that way, and I have a lot of friends that feel the way I do. We're extremely grateful for our military because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the sacrifices that our military makes uh, so that we can have our freedom, so that we can speak English, so we can have our democracies. And so as a civilian, then you need to tell me what you want me to say because I am grateful and I will thank you and I will do everything in my power to give back. So if that's not the right thing to do and that's not what you want to hear, then you need to educate us civilians. I don't think I do because you're here. This is exactly what you should do as a civilian. This is what civilians should do. They should come and engage in conversations with veterans and what they do. And I think that your chosen profession uh, speaks volumes about me knowing what you do is more important than you telling me thank you. You know what I mean? Uh, seeing the work that you do, that you actually have, genuinely have a heart for veterans and you understand uh, difficulties in reintegration and all those issues, like that's meaningful. A thank you by a random stranger on the street means nothing to me. It's like seeing a, a nickel. Like, I don't feel like even stopping to pick it up. I don't want to have that. I don't want to have that conversation. You know what I mean? Cash is a nice way to show <laughs> that you really are thankful. Like picking up your check at Eden yeah. Park, like randomly, someone pays for your food. That's if good. you just couldn't control yourself and wanted to give me Huey, I would not turn him down. I'm just saying. Dogs are always accepted. Dogs, are, dogs or American currency always, certainly preferred method. Damien, who's this young fella? That's uh, me as a cherry. Explain a cherry to our uninitiated. Uh, cherry is um, brand new. I wasn't a private because I had a degree, but I enlisted like an idiot <laughs> instead of went to OCS. What, and what year was this? 2011. You were taking selfies six years ago? Uh, yeah, I was You're a trendsetter, man. It was my first day at the, it was our first day at the range with my unit. Like, this is after, after OSIT, so yeah, it was our first day at the range. Just Wh where's this at? This is at Fort Stewart, Fort Stewart, and what time of the year? It looks hot. It was always hot. <laughs> <laughs> That's also at Fort Stewart. Um, we just did some uh, um, mount training, which uh, it's just Georgia, right near Savannah. <sighs> Todd. I had a good time. Fort Polk is even hotter, but. So you were a riper cherry here. Yeah. Still yeah. a cherry, but you're getting there. Still made someone take my picture. You'd move beyond selfies. You had right. a little more authority. Right. Like here, yeah. 
This is at JRTC in Fort Polk. Um, uh, those are the horses, huh? That run across the range. Yeah, that was at whatever country they made up. We had just taken whatever village, and they just kind of moved on in. And those are two of the guys that are in my squad. Yeah, so Fort Polk has wild horses that run around, and you'll be in the middle of a, like a 50 caliber live fire range, and then you'll have like some dudes come out screaming like "Stop shooting!" and like the horses run out there. Uh, and you definitely don't want to shoot the horses because horses are pretty awesome. But sometimes you do on accident, and that's a bad day for everybody. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, there's artillery ranges out there. Those horses get. They're wild horses. They don't want to be moved. R.I.P. Yeah, there's a song about that. <laughs> yeah, so explain to people the, uh, the misery of JRTC. Um, well, at Fort Stewart in Georgia, like, it's already hot and humid. So we got off the plane at Fort Polk, and it was like I got hit in the chest. I couldn't breathe. And then porta potties is a whole other thing. <laughs> 120 degrees just to poop. <laughs> Joint Readiness Training Center. It's every unit has to go, uh, at least our, uh, to some big training thing uh, before they deploy, at least nowadays. Like either NTC in California, which is also apparently miserable, and JRTC, which is just, you feel it, yeah, I don't know. It's, and then just out in the field, you put on these stupid laser tag stuff on your helmet and your gear. And then you put on your rifle, and then you like simulate with the op four, which is opposing force. And those are they get those are people that are stationed at Fort Polk, and they get good at that, so they're good insurgents. So typically, if you're going to Afghanistan, you go to JRTC because it's more of a wooded environment. You go to NTC in California if you're getting ready to go to Iraq. And that's the National Training Center, if you were going to ask. Also worth pointing out, I think you would agree, there is nothing more shameful or embarrassing in this world than sitting in a portage on when it is 135 degrees and just sweating profusely with some dude knocking on the door and yelling, I'm trying to hurry, leave me alone. <laughs> uh, also of note, every fire ant in Louisiana is on Fort Polk's property. As soon as you step into Lewisburg or Louisville, whatever, there's, it's ant free. Yeah. Uh, here's another selfie. Um, uh, there's a real mission going on, and I was just in the truck taking selfies. <laughs> <laughs> mission be damned. <laughs> uh, yeah, we we went with um, special forces, so they were doing all. It was a dream deployment. Uh, I was in the regular army infantry, and we got attached. Each squad got attached as uplift squads to. What's that? We were just more ass for the special forces team. <laughs> That's the way they describe it to me, and I can't think of any better way to describe it. We're just like helping them just with like a little extra personnel. So it was like a whole squad was like about 10 or 12 of us. We had our own attachments, like a cook. I don't know why we need to cook. And um, uh, like a forward observer and a medic and a mechanic and we uh, with an infantry squad. And we all went and we got stuck with a special forces ODA, which is Operational Detachment Alpha. So, where exactly, specifically, is this? Probably Nidrab, Nidrab province. Where's that? What part? Southern, or eastern? East, 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 southeast. Well, not so, well, east. Um, we're about an hour's drive from Bagram. So you're close to like uh, Nangarhar and Kunar province, like that direction. Uh, this was in Kapisa province. Okay, all right, I got you. Uh, and this is what year? 2013. 2013. 12, 12 or 13. He's a studly fella. Yeah. Uh, this is at, see, the Special Forces guys just did important stuff, and we just were bored um, sometimes. We got cool toys. Yeah, we did. Uh, we got to paint our rifles. 
it was kind of cool. I mean, I had a, a grenade launcher on my rifle, which is actually really heavy, and I was like picking up like a, if I borrowed up my buddy's rifle just for like go to the range, I'd be like, geez, so light. Um, but this is during, there was during Ashura, so I didn't really, yeah, we wore band or we wore scarves all the time, ball caps, they wanted us to look like them, so we didn't. Todd's looking like he's about to ask, can you explain what Ashura is? <laughs> Ashura is like a get-together between big dogs of some sort, uh, so. Like the village elders. Yeah. And like your and our commanding people, yeah. officer and the high NCOs. Yeah. So the special forces team leader is a captain, uh, he was there. Uh, the warrant officer, our chief, those attached to us was there and like whatever. The important people were there and I'm not an important person, so I'm here taking selfies. Um, so, I mean, like I Once didn't Once again, mission yeah. be damned. Right, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is at the, um, this is at the district center. Um, so it was kind of secure, I guess. The, um, well, there's relative safety in the Shuras because no one wants to kill the village elder because right. then everybody's in it trouble. It looks bad. Yeah. yeah, it's not a good look. Yeah, <laughs> looks bad. And uh, yeah, the, so this is that's Huey, obviously. That's uh, Huey. What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> so we were doing, we were practicing. The SF guys were practicing vehicle interdiction, which is just <laughs> like getting people out of cars. So I, we all did a rotation, and I like. Brit, the handler Seth wanted to practice with Brit the dog, and I was like, I'll wear the bite arm, which is dumb. And so Brit dragged me out of the car. And like, and he told me, and Seth told me, like, I was like hitting Brit, and I felt so bad because I love Brit. And, but, and then Seth, uh, he said, stay on the ground, you piece of poop. Like, he really got into character for this. And I was like, geez, Seth, we're friends. We are friends. <laughs> but, yeah, we just, um, yeah. And they dragged you across. That's gravel, man. That doesn't look too comfortable. It was, it was rough. <laughs> it was rough. And I was wearing civilians, which was also a perk of deploying with special forces, so that I did not wear any um, uniform unless we were outside the wire. Did you and the dog make cool afterwards? Oh, we were always cool. All right. Yeah, Britt was cool. Ooh, that's quite the hit. That was, um, I was driving, uh, the door that is no longer there f blew off. That was a, a V-bid, which is a, a vehicle-borne IED. It was a white Corolla. Uh, we were in. A, you, yeah. I'm getting the look. You need to explain it a little further. It is a uh, an IED and a vehicle, and they ram it into you and explodes when it hits you. Yeah, a car bomb. Yeah, um, it was a white Corolla, which coincidentally every car in yeah, Afghanistan has a white Corolla. Every car in Afghanistan has a white Corolla. So we got intelligence. It was like, hey, <laughs> there might be a V-bid. <laughs> Like, great. The one time we saw, we got a report of like, hey, we got a moto with a V-bid, which is a motorcycle with a bomb on it. And we, oh, we also got a, we might have a blue burka suicide vest. And then we saw a person in a blue burka on a motorcycle. <laughs> cool. Um, but No, like, this is not hyperbolic. Literally every single car in Afghanistan is a white Corolla, and every pickup truck is a gray Hilux. So they always say it's either gray Hilux or white Corolla. So like your butt is puckered the entire time you're driving down the road because those are the only vehicles you're passing. Toyota makes bomb-friendly vehicles. So if you own a Toyota, thanks. Yeah. Nick, we forgot to say that we are recording live tonight. Oh, that's a good point. So um, I've had a Toyota before and I loved it. <laughs> Just saying. You were probably a terrorist. Maybe we can get them as a sponsor. I do. <laughs> I have you a have a Toyota? I have a Prius. Oh. Yeah. 
It was a hand-me-down. It's not a Corolla, though. No, it's a Prius. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the car rammed into us uh, in the driver's side, and that initiated a complex ambush. So basically, they're shooting at us from the side that they like my door blew off. I didn't know I was I was all messed up. I had a like I was woozy, and no one died in the truck. The only casualty well, was the um, guy driving the car. So there was five Americans and one Afghan in the car, truck, and no one died. No life limb or eyesight was lost. Can I just point out that while you were a bit jacked up, you were not too jacked up to take a <laughs> selfie. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was. This is in the med shed, and I had my. F I think I had my phone on me everywhere, and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna take a selfie." I mean, I was never gonna get this opportunity again. Hopefully, so. Yeah. All right. I, so like an SFG, like an SF medic was just like cleaning me up, and like I'm like, I can't hear you at all. Where's my phone? <laughs> so, I need to take a selfie. Right. So yeah, that's uh, on the parade field coming home. That's my mom. I got pinned to Purple Heart by my ex-wife, who's not here today. Um, uh, Thankfully. Ra Rachel's okay with it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, and that's my dad. Uh, that American flag looks like it's in the distance, but it's in his hat, like a little one he had in his hat. Is that a Bucko's hat, too? Yeah. Nice. Big Pirates fan, yeah. Yin's in it up out there. Yeah. All right, so we're at the end of your slideshow, but... Here's the point where we get a little bit political tonight. But, so Todd makes a point, we don't talk politics at VBC events, and I don't, I, I, I certainly don't want to get make this a political discussion, but uh, the president has announced a new strategy in Afghanistan over the last couple of days, and I'm going to talk to some of the other Afghan vets, and some of the older vets as well, about their thoughts on this new plan. Damien, you're first. I think, uh, well, Okay, that was too yeah. open-ended. Can, no, no, no. can we win this thing? No. Um, no, the, it's the, the name, we went into it, like the graveyard of empires. People have not, Alexander the Great couldn't do it. The Russians couldn't do it. The British couldn't do it. We can help empower them as much as we possibly can. But I think our mere presence there is, um, helping to create, um, uh, radicalization and insurgency. I think the JTAC that we had attached to us said it the best. He's like, this is boring here. If I were a person lived here, I'd probably fight the foreign invader too. So yeah, that's fair. So also, uh, president made a point, which I've never heard f from anyone politically before, uh, to acknowledge that Pakistan, at least 50% of the problem, you would agree with that, right? Yeah, foreign fighters coming over all the time. They're, like, I don't know, probably half the people we shot at were probably Pakistani, Pakistani, yeah. They probably weren't from Afghanistan even. They were all foreign fighters. Or yeah. local villagers whose poppy fields had been burned, which was their only source of income, so they get paid 50 bucks by Taliban and plan an IED. So it's really, it's lose-lose. If you were in charge, what would your call be? Not like an immediate pullout, but I would finish whatever ALP training, whatever training they have going on was probably special operations doing that, and whatever support they need, and like be like, hey, like, come up with a point. Like, this is where we're going to stop. You better, here, we'll supply you with this, this, probably this training, and then we're out of here. I mean, like... A handshake, we'll, high five, good luck. Yeah, here's here's BAF, here's CAF, do whatever. I mean, 2001, I was in high school when this started. Yeah, so, like, my first deployment was in 2006, and at the end of that, I was like, all right. Well, this shouldn't go on too much longer now, right? Like, this can't go on forever, and then... 2009, we're back there. And then when I left in 
early 2000s. I was like, all right, we've definitely got to be closing, at least getting close to the end on this thing. And here we are seven years later, still there. There, there was a squad leader in one of our trainings, like, we've been at war with these people for 10 years. And this is like when we first got to the unit. And I was thinking like, oh, well, I'll never get to deploy. Like, like I was like, oh, you know, like, I wanted to deploy. Um, so it's like, I'll never get to do it. And then <laughs> here we are, people are still dying over there. Well, thanks so much for sharing, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. It's good to have you, brother. Does any veteran of any era have a differing, conflicting, agreeing opinion of our new policy on Afghanistan? Really? So every, Damien, you speak for everyone, apparently. Ryan, do you agree? Wake up, Ryan. Because you're up next anyway, so you might as well. Hello, everyone. Uh, I, I think that, uh, in, my, in my opinion, Damien stated it very well. The opinion of Ryan, I'm taking off my VA vet center hat right now because Donald Trump is my boss. Well, you're Captain All. I, I, yeah, so in two, yeah, in two ways. Two hats um, are removed. Yeah, so my personal opinion, regardless of military or VA policy, <laughs> as a disclaimer, uh, is that Damien is, is correct. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what victory looks like. I don't know how we achieve that victory. Um, I am not an Afghanistan vet. I, w I was an Iraq vet, but I, I stay pretty well informed of what's going on over there. My father was just in Kabul. He just got back. Um, and he's the eternal optimist. And even after a year over there, he was like, I don't know what the hell's going on over there. And he, he just got back two months ago. So um, I don't, what does victory look like? And if we left tomorrow, would anyone care what was happening in Afghanistan? So that's the point, I think. If, so if the president or General Mattis or, or if anyone laid out said, this is the end zone, this is what victory looks like, that's a different story, right? But, yeah, but until we yeah. decided what that, that is, because it's like, well, do we have to score points? Like, how does this work? Is it touchdowns? Were we based on home runs? Like, there's no metric of what a win is. So until there is some sort of uh, defining World War II, we knew when we won. You know what I mean? Like Hitler was dead. The Japanese surrendered. War's over. Pack it up, boys. Like, there's no there's not been that for Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Hey, look at that. Yes, Who, sir. Todd, I, I don't, you know, make statements. I try to ask questions at these events. So I'll ask this question. What about Korea? Isn't Korea kind of an open-ended, long-term commitment that we made, that we kind of fought the war to an inconclusive end? The war is actually still going on. It was just an armistice, and we continue to have troops uh, there, you know, for decades after, might Afghanistan be something like that? If there were two Afghanistans, if there was a North Afghanistan and South Afghanistan, or a North Iraq and a South Iraq, where you could be, because if you're in South Korea, you're amongst uh, like-minded democracy for the most part, right? Like Afghanistan, there's, there's nowhere to go. It is all Taliban. It is all Al-Qaeda. I mean, no, it, I take that back. It's all very good people. And there's small pockets of these people all around, but there's not a safe zone. There's not somewhere, unless you want to go back to the drawing board like we did after World War I and start drawing lines, creating new countries. You could do that in Iraq. You could create Kurdistan, which would be a place that we could support. But I think it's a little different scenario. Sir. How you doing? I'm a uh, Desert Storm Kosovo veteran. Uh, I also served in uh, Panama, helping the Panama invasion. And I'm listening to all this. 
And the, the way I look at this, I'm a 22-year veteran in the Air Force. In World War II, our soldiers brought the fight to Hitler in Germany. In Korea, we stopped the advancement of communism in Korea. Whenever we fought wars, we brought the fight to them. And if you believe if we don't bring the fight to ISIS and all these other terrorists, we're going to be fighting them in our neighborhoods. It's already happening, ladies and gentlemen. So if we pull out of there, that just makes them stronger and more able to attack our homes here in this country. That has been our winning strategy in this country since day one, since the Revolutionary War. Keep the fight off of our turf. That's what we're doing there. And that's just one veteran's opinion. I appreciate that. I would offer a counterpoint to that with Afghanistan particularly, uh, is that the Taliban have no ambitions outside of Afghanistan. The Taliban aren't a terrorist organization. They were terroristic towards their own people, but they were a sovereign government. It was, it was, Who protected Bin Laden? But the Taliban themselves did not attack us. Yeah, I, I'm all for Al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, all that. Like, but I, I brought this point up the other night. If all the terrorists went to Afghanistan, that's awesome. You know why? Because you just bomb them there. You got them all in one spot. I don't, I don't see how continuing to fight the Taliban. We're playing a game of whack-a-mole over there. You go, to, you go to Afghanistan, cool, they move to Syria. You go to Syria, they're going to move to Iraq. You go to Iraq, they're going to move somewhere else. It's a never-ending game until we kill all of them. And we can't do that with 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 troops at a time. That's not the answer. On to you, Ryan. Hello. So who's this nerd? That was me on my commissioning day when I sold my soul. So, hey. Here's when you were cool. Yeah, that's back when I, back in the NCO days when I was cool. That's my, uh, that's the original B team, minus one stinky guy we kicked off. The B but team. The B team, the Bravo team. It's like the A team, but like not as dangerous. It's... No Mr. That's a, T. That is exactly true. Yeah, we, so that was, um, that's, that's me and, uh, Jake and um, Terry Miles, who we just called him Booby Miles, and uh, what was that? Booby Miles. Booby Miles. Booby Miles. Have you ever seen the show or movie Friday Night Lights? Yes. So there was a guy in that movie named Booby Miles, and it was gotcha. big at the time. So we just started calling him Booby Miles, and uh, these two are the reason that I knew that I could be a good father, right? Because when you're an <laughs> NCO, <laughs> when you're an NCO in charge of two guys like this. I think that, do you notice how much more hair I have in that picture? Because after a year with these two, greatest field soldiers you could ask for, but once you get in garrison, it's like, you, I just got this sixth sense, like you'd be walking around and it's like when your child isn't near you, like that's what would happen, I'd, like it's too quiet, like where's Booby? <laughs> like what is going on? Because they were always, they were always up to something, but in the, in the field, they were amazing. Couldn't ask for any better guys. And also strict professionals. Yes, yeah. So uh, if you go back to the previous picture, this was, I was like, okay, guys, look hardcore. We're about to go on our first raid. And uh, then after, the next picture is after the raid. And we're like, we got them. We got them. So this was in 2009. And you can tell by, like, uniforms, right? I have this theory about uniforms, which is, like, 
if you're in uh, if you're in desert uh, desert uniform with woodland camo armor on, you're like you're in the stuff, right? You're in the you were in a hardcore thing. If you're wearing ACUs, you had you probably had an easy deployment, and if you were in multicam, you were in the shit the whole time. Like that's just my small theory on uniforms of the of our global war on terrorism. But this was 2009. Things were, you know, they definitely calmed down from my previous deployment in 2004. Um, but we had what we called the last cool job in Iraq, which was we were there for the turnover of authority in 2009 from U.S. forces to Iraqi forces. Um, and most infantry platoons were just doing like patrols. Couldn't even go in the cities. Couldn't even go into cities without Iraqi army with them. We got tasked with working with the asymmetric warfare group, a bunch of these like retired special forces guys who taught us how to, um, our job was to kill or capture HVTs in our area. So that was the night of our, of our first raid where we went and got one of the uh, top HVTs for, in our area. And uh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, HVT, high value target. So these were, we had a list of top, you know, the top 10 guys, and I was, one of my additional duties was to be the intelligence NCO, and I would sit in on these uh, groups where we'd go through the dossiers of who they were and their known associates and what, they're, uh, what they were doing. And um, it was a cool job because uh, we would have to operate under what we call the 10% plan, which was you train and train and train, but normally when you do a big operation, you know, it's always, it's rehearsed, it's rehearsed, it's rehearsed. Well, when, you, when you're doing a job like this, you can't rehearse it. Right, because you find out you you get notification at a point in time. This got we found this HVT here. Go get him. You can't rehearse that. Like that's time sensitive information. Like you have to go get him right then. So the ten percent plan was, you meet, you do a whatever recon you can, whether through a map, or or if you're lucky, maybe you got aerial assets that can give you live information on what's going on in that area, uh, and you go. So as we're riding in the back of our strikers and the back of a Blackhawk or whatever, uh, the squad leaders and the PL are, are going over the plan. Who's doing what? What are we doing? So we were figuring it out like on the go. And so like I said, that picture, I was like, okay, guys, look cool. We're about to go in our first raid. And then we got the guy. So that was afterwards. We were feeling pretty pretty full of ourselves, as you can see. What is that? Where, which one are you? I'm the guy with the the only Are you one making with the gun. duck lips? Jeez, what's that? You making like duck lips? Yeah, is that that's, what that is? I was really, I was really like that. Did Damien take that picture? <laughs> Damien did take that picture. So this this goes back to my earlier theory. This was the the desert camo and the desert camo and woodland camo. Uh, so uh, this was 2004, before we you know had any any cool trucks we were riding around in those we called them hoopties or bass boats and that's what we had and we showed up and to be honest when we first got there we didn't even have those armored doors on there um those came later and we had to figure out how to put those on my favorite part about those is the glass there is what <laughs> like four inches thick yeah and the door is like maybe like a quarter inch thick <laughs> yeah so like if a bullet hits there you're good if yeah. it hits there you are dead yeah but the problem is is that we're all standing up outside looking over the door anyway because we're idiots. Because we're idiots. Like, we actually built special benches so that if you see the guy in the back, back seat where he's sitting, he's actually up on that special bench that we had built so we could look out over the door. We're like, great, we finally <laughs> got armored doors. Let's not use them at all. Right. So, yeah, they were great. I mean, you, could, you had 360-degree security the whole time because everybody's pointing their weapon out, but... Once starts once uh, things started blowing up, they weren't they weren't very much fun. And what are these? Is they just waiting for their turn to get in? This was during a mission when we were like collecting UXOs. They were like 
Unexploded ordnance. Unexploded, yeah. Unexploded ordnance. There was a bunch of it lying around, and they thought, hey, we don't have enough explosive ordnance disposal, so let's send out the infantry guys to pick up all this stuff. What do you pick up unexploded ordnance? Very carefully, Todd. <laughs> Very carefully. Sometimes we would shoot it or kick it around first. That's what we used to do is you shoot a few Mark 19 grenades at it, and if it blows up, you're like, well, that was definitely a bomb. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, and that, that, was, uh, that was the platoon in, in 2009. That was, um, that was Phantom Platoon. That was the one who we got uh, tasked with that special job, which was a lot of fun. But that's, yeah, that's all of us. That was our – oh, that, so that was 2009 as well. That, we called that Spring Break Baghdad. Because we went on a little field trip down to Baghdad and got the Sabres, and we got this really sweet pick. And there's uh, two of my best friends there, uh, Eric and Tino, um, Tom Norris. We just call him Tino. And as you can see here, Eric, being the most hardcore guy, uh, didn't take any of his stuff off. We're like, spring break, dude. We're in the green zone. We thought, we're like, nothing bad can happen here. So we dropped all our stuff and left it there. And he was like, you got to stay tactical because he was hardcore. And he... <laughs> He left his body armor and everything. That's also on. what we called the summer of 2000 in Afghanistan. We came in, we had shirts made. It said Spring Break 2007 on the front with the American flag. And on yeah. the back it says, while you were chilling, we were killing. <laughs> it was perfect. Yeah. So. But that's an awesome picture, man. That was, a, that was our field trip. That was back into, you can tell, see, there's the camo thing again, right? And that's, that's back we uh, found uh, most of these things of, of Saddam Hussein were destroyed right after the war, and we, we found this in this little town right outside Tikrit, which is Saddam's hometown, so we took a photo op there. And then did you shoot it up after? No, we left it there. We thought, mm. Yeah, we just was like, that's a little piece of history. We'll just leave it there. Well, let's consider it. Yeah. All right, so, so we are out of time. We're actually running a little over. I want you to tell one more story. Okay. I want you to tell about your first firefight. That one I told that other yeah, time? that one. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so we were uh, um, out on an OP, an observation post, um, which is typically where we send out a, a small team, usually four of us. Um, this was on my first deployment, back when things were still a little more hairy. And uh, we walked out after curfew. We were in this place called Samara where uh, it was so bad that the rules of engagement were if you see anyone out after curfew, you were actually out to shoot them. That's how bad this town was. It was just we were getting beat up real bad. So they sent us out there. And we took over this these uh, <laughs> took over this uh, family's house, and uh, um, which is always an interesting thing to do when you walk in. And you're like, "Hi, we're Americans. We're not here to hurt you, but you're not allowed to leave. And if you try to leave, we'll have to shoot you. I'm sorry, but we need to be in your house and to look at this one particular thing. Um, usually, it's like an intersection or a bridge or something. We're just trying to make sure that um, nobody's planting an IED, but we're not allowed to let the family leave because if they do, they could tell people we were in there and bad things can happen so typically you have like two of us guarding the family and two people up doing the watch watching what we're supposed to be watching and we were in the middle of a shift change and it was just starting to, it was close to dawn we were in the middle of a shift change so i was on my way up to relieve the people up on the roof and we started taking fire and my other my other team leader who was down there waiting because you switch one at a time you can't both switch because then no one's watching the family blah, blah blah so i'm going up there by myself and I walk up the, to the rooftop, and we start taking fire, and I run over, and, and almost all the roofs in Iraq, there's a short little wall. It's usually about three or four feet high. So I you know, got down real low, and I ran, and I dove behind the wall, and my, my buddy's on the radio saying, hey, we're taking fire, blah, blah, blah. So I have the M249 saw, which is a fully automatic belt-fed weapon, and I'm just about to like pop over to return fire, and I remember having this like thought in my head that was like, 
because I was so pumped. I was like, yeah, finally, a firefight. I'm so excited, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is what I trained for. And right before I, I popped over to return fire, I, I hesitated because I'm like, oh, my God, if I stick my head over this, I could get shot in the face. And I remember that thought, like, very clearly, like, like that survival instinct kicked in. You were like, yeah, yeah, this, it's all fun and games, but you could get shot in the face. Just remember that, so keep your head down. So... I popped over the wall and I just started, I was like, pa 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 you know, and I was like, okay, cool. And so then the team leader came up there and things started calming down and I guess I scared them off or whatever. And it's just, the sun's just starting to come up and my team leader's asking me, he's like, okay, how'd that go? So he's calling up the sit rep and blah, blah, blah. Situational report. Situational report. So he's calling up the, the situational report. And he asked me, he's like, private all, how many, how many rounds do you think you fired? And I'm like, I don't know, like 9 or 12? I don't know, but I think that scared him off. And he's like, oh, okay. So he's calling up the report. He's like, yeah, I fired, you know, two bursts, blah, blah, blah. Um, scared the insurgents away. And so he's like, are you sure it was only 9 or 12? I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 9 or 12. And as the sun comes up, you just look down, and there's just brass and links just littered around me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I probably fired, like, you went probably a whole fired can. like 250 rounds. <laughs> like, it had to be almost an entire belt of ammunition. And I don't remember doing it at all. I was just in the moment. And I don't know what was happening, but yeah. Did you call back and uh, fix the sit rep? I don't remember. That wasn't my job. I was I was just private all man. I was just a little little guy, just scared about getting shot in the face. Want to make sure I scared all the insurgents away. Yeah. So that was my first firefight. See, sometimes it is funny. <laughs> sometimes it is funny. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. it. We're out of time tonight, guys. All right, I think so. That's the end of our program. I had a great time. I hope you did too. I know Mike's probably still mad at me. Oh wow! Oh, we'll give him the mic for sure. This is my first evening meeting. I came to see what Todd was doing, actually. But I want to say right now, I thank every one of you for your service. When I'm walking down the street with this hat, I'll tell you about the hat later, uh, I don't know whether you served in the military or not, unless a lot of people come up to me and thank me for mine. And uh, when uh, I'm walking down the street and I see a policeman or a fireman or, or somebody with a shirt on that uh, indicates that he's a veteran, I, I don't usually say, but I do do this and they don't have to respond. This hat was given to me by a lady after one of these veterans breakfast meetings here, and she gave it to me, and I had to promise that I would wear it for a certain length of time. Well, it has become part of my trademark because I don't have anything up there to keep me warm. <laughs> but uh, I do wear this hat, and I'm proud of this hat, and I'm proud of the service I gave. And, uh, I just want to thank all of you, and we got to, ought to thank Todd, too, because he's been at this for about seven or eight years. You'd be surprised at how little he does. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that. It's mostly I, Kevin. It's almost exclusively Kevin. I'm glad you said it, not I. <laughs> Didn't he try to sell you a book yet? <laughs> he did. He gave me one, signed it, and then said that'll be 10 bucks. You're lucky. I cost me 20. Oh.
But that's really what I wanted to say. I, I, like I say, you see one of you walking down the street, I have no idea whether you're a veteran or a non-veteran. But what I say to the non-veterans, somebody had to stay home and make the bullets. That's right. With that, I'll say good night. Thanks, Pete. Final thought for the night. We do pick on Todd a lot, but we got to give him credit. He did have the foresight to hire me and Lauren to yeah. to write this ship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's it. That's all we got for tonight, folks. Thanks so much for coming out. 